0: My name is Lisa Smith Henderson, and I am the host of the podcast Alma, Am I Racist? To find out who Alma was and how she inspired me, go to the website almamiracist.com, and you can check out our other podcasts there, or wherever you normally get your podcasts. I'm delighted to have back again today, Reverend Amber Lowe Woodfork. Amber is a pastor, a speaker, a political activist, and also is working on her PhD, as if she's not busy enough. You can check her website out and find out all of what she's up to by going to truthistrouble.com. She's also got a YouTube channel by the same name, so I hope you'll check that out. Now, Amber, the more that I've done this, over the past six, seven months, I've really looked at these very subtle ways of white privilege and you know and some to you probably wouldn't seem so subtle it's like well yeah here's an example my father was one of seven children He grew up in the depression he was the only one in his family to graduate from college he went on to join the air force be an officer and then to go to law school he became a very successful lawyer and became a real estate he had a kingdom, basically. Now, people would say, well, he started from nothing. But here's where I took it back. I thought, my father got in trouble as a teenager. Instead of being incarcerated, they sent him to military school. So he went from military school onto, from a military academy, onto VPI. So that there, right there, is the difference my father got privilege because he wasn't put in jail, number one. So because he wasn't put in jail, he got to go to college and he graduated from college. Then he got to go in the Air Force and he got to be an officer and he got to fly fighter jets. And then he was a white man going to law school. And then he was able to get an internship with a very prominent white attorney. And he goes to a small Southern town and becomes the city attorney. Now, it was a tiny town, but there were no Black people in political office, you know. So that is white privilege, front and center. And I don't care that he came from nothing. He came from something. His skin was white. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, by, by virtue of being white. I mean, he got he got mortgages and loans when he had virtually no money to buy anything. He was like a poor, starving, just out-of-law school attorney, but he was able to buy property that ended up being worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. Now, there's no black person that would have been given credit. Not, no, not, not in not the at 60s. All.
1: No. Yeah. And we don't we don't discuss that enough, Lisa, how again, uh, financial institutions, i.e. banks are prejudiced when it comes to lending to Black people, right? So the same access to capital that white folks have and have had, you know, for a long time, we don't, by and large, have that same privilege and access, right? If, if we do get it, it comes it comes with higher interest rates. Exactly. <laughs> so, so yeah, that's a whole nother layer because first of all, wealth is tied to land ownership. We know that. And so if you're able to purchase acres and acres of land by virtue of you being white, you have built wealth right there that your kids will benefit from for generations. And to your point about you know him not being locked up, that's how a lot of black kids are caught up in the system at an early age. And even if we do serve our time right after we serve our time, you still have that felony record. In many instances you can't get financial aid for for college, right? And so that's a whole other level of a burden on you. And so being white, no matter, again, if you're rich or poor, affords so many privileges. Yeah, I, did, I just
0: need that, folks to, to, to recognize that. I think we need to almost autopsy our lives, going back to the very beginning of, of our lives, just yeah. the things that we took for granted. And, and compare it
1: to your black and brown friends. right.
0: <laughs> And, and one of the examples is I, I'm very affiliated with the recovery community, both younger people and older people. And what I've seen is the white kids are given a lot more, for, you know, the judge will say, well, you could go to treatment. And I love, you know, there are judges who have stood up and said, I'm watching this black young man get treated very differently than this white young man. And this ain't right. And but that, that's so few and far between. So just to acknowledge and I will tell you, I wanted to call the police on somebody very close to me because they were doing something illegal with drugs. And I had three white men tell me, please don't do that. He'll have a felony on his record for the rest of his life. And I'm, I was so angry. I was kind of like, well, too bad, so sad. And this person came back and thanked me later for not doing that and ended up being clean and sober to this day. But our legal system is set up to favor whites. And I just don't know why this is so hard. This is not personal. Why is it so hard for white people to say, Yeah, I got privileged because of the color of my skin. I can't help it. I was born white, but it certainly is incumbent upon me to say I get treated differently.
1: Yeah, and and that's how you know that you're not entirely powerless over the situation, right? You have the power to say, okay, I benefit from this system and I have the power to then dismantle it. If you have the power to damn near overthrow the US government, you know, (laughs) without a bloodbath, then you have the power to say, okay, let me, if I'm gonna overthrow a system, let me overthrow a system that favors me. If I have the power to overthrow the US government, right? (laughs) A whole institution, a whole republic, then I have the power to overthrow an ideology that favors me over black, brown, and indigenous folks, right? I don't think my people are are totally powerless over the situation, right? Because again, if you can overthrow, almost overthrow, you know, a whole government, then you can confront the institution of whiteness. Like we say, right, goes back centuries to say, okay, if we're gonna burn something down, burn that down, right? Yeah, exactly. and, and, and replace it with, with, with something better. Because um, again, this country, I'm not sure if I mentioned it last time, Lisa, but I had read, part, it's very long, so I didn't read the whole thing. I got to read the whole thing at some point. But I had begun to read a study published by, I think, Citibank, where a group of economists got together to um, study the financial effects of the economic effects of of white supremacy and of of anti-blackness and racism. And it costs this country, I am not kidding you, trillions of dollars every year to maintain white supremacy. Damn, (laughs) It costs money to disenfranchise people. You know, this country could really be great and and really be wealthy and could really be telling the truth about that if it invested in black people and in black institutions that is power right there to say okay instead of making this country broker and broker and in more and more debt right let's let's make it right and, and let's invest in black people so we really like so we really can be great i mean white supremacy costs money right it costs to be a racist right. I I mean, that's a, I love
0: that and I'm glad somebody sat down and and looked at it. It's the same thing with the jails. What it costs us to keep these nonviolent offenders in jail is, but then again, you've got private companies that are benefiting from having the prisoners in there. Yeah. If they start to run out of those guys, they're going to go get the people at the border and throw them in jail to keep the money going. One thing that I've noticed with a number of my white friends, they're it's sort of like, what can we do? And I'm in the, the white book club, the white lady book club, but there are actually a few men. And I'm getting to a point where, and we are starting to talk about this. Okay, what can we do? Like we've, we've learned and we're continuing to learn, but what can we actually do? And I wonder, is it, do you pick what you're involved in? Like in the group, there are a lot of educators and they're very, passionate about changing the edu- the public educational system. So how do you, if you were going to sit down and talk to a group of us, white people that want to make a difference and yet feel hamstrung by our anxiety, the tension, the paralysis?
1: Yeah, I was, okay, so you mentioned that a group of educators are in your book club, right? I would say like last time we mentioned you know talking to your family and all that stuff right so to this point then i would say okay whatever career you're in if you are a teacher if you are a doctor if you're a lawyer right if you're a banker if you're a police officer whatever whatever career you're in so ask yourself okay how has this profession how has this field benefited from white privilege how has this profession sought to disenfranchise black people or who you know anyone who's not white how has this profession yeah benefited and maintained how has it benefited from and helped to maintain and uphold white supremacy oh amber that is can you repeat that again yeah how has my career feel how has my profession Benefited from and helped to maintain and uphold white supremacy. So, Bam. yeah. So my husband is a teacher, right? And my mom is too. They're both educators. And as we, you know, already mentioned on here, as as you and I know, Lisa, public school education is so inequitable. There are many gross inequities in our public schooling um, system. And so a teacher could then say, okay, how can I use my position as an educator to bring awareness to how certain schools get more funding than other schools? How certain schools, you know, lack proper technology or the same access to technology as other schools? How can I use my privilege, right? to question why these schools remain on the Title I list and never get off of it. Therefore they have to continuously rely on handouts and never be self-sufficient or, or never you know have all the proper funding that, that it needs, right. Again, I, I'm sure if, if we could think of a hundred careers right now, I'm sure each of them in some way have either benefited from or helped to maintain white supremacy. Even me as a pastor in the Christian church, the Christian church for sure, right? No matter if it's even Black churches have maintained white supremacy, right? (laughs) And so my job as a theologian, as a pastor, is to recognize that and to call it out and say, okay, how can we, you know, we can call out white supremacy, right? in white churches, but how have we bought into that in our own Black worship spaces, right? And how can we work to to root that out? Again, I'm sure anyone, anyone's profession can think of some some hiring practices, how Black and brown folks, you know, have been excluded from the hiring, you know, pool because of their name, because it sounds too ethnic or because of nepotism or, or whatever the case may be, right? You know, examine your profession and ask, okay, how has this profession become what it is because of the system of white supremacy? And I I guarantee you that it has in some way.
0: I'm going to officially ask you, would you come be a guest at our book club on Zoom and and talk to our people about how we can begin to do something concrete to change. Yeah,
1: for sure. For sure. I mean, first of all, I love book clubs. I love oh. books. <laughs> I love books. <laughs> but but sure. I mean, no matter the no matter the industry, some your industry in some way, you know, has shut the door on black and brown folks in some way, and privileged and privileged whiteness, or they've only let it, let in just a few and thought that was enough. No, it's not enough.
0: Well, one thing I will say, you know, because my background is broadcasting, I have noticed that they have been using more Black actors in commercials.
1: Yeah, I've noticed yeah. that too. And at the same time though, and I hate I hate to nitpick, but I got to say it, although we know, you know, that, that there are interracial marriages and what have you, I have seen more depictions of interracial marriages on commercials yes. and less... Yeah of like a black person and a, and a, black, a black woman and a black man. Uh huh. Like,
0: why, why can't you see a black woman uh-huh. with a black man? <laughs> because they're afraid people won't be able to relate. Yeah, yeah. And, and I just, I think these thought patterns- Have you noticed
1: that too, Lisa?
0: Yes, yes, yeah. because there was one where the woman looked white, but the children looked mixed and I yeah. was like
1: huh and, and then, there are mixed kids in the world yes yeah. I mean, and then you
0: see the black husband and, and I thought okay and then I'd see another one it'd be the same thing so yeah, yeah where are solid black couples yeah uh, seriously and so yeah. I I do see a change and and hopefully I guess it's like you know we bumble along until we get it right yeah. but it is it's something I guess but Amber, I so appreciate that you are not pussyfooting around this topic of unity and healing. Nope. <laughs> it's not your style, is it? No, it's not my style. <laughs> because I think we, as white people, need to hear this. Like, uh-uh, not everybody's gonna join hands and stand on the top of the hill and sing peace of the world. It's too
1: soon, it's too fresh, and it's too raw. Right, because and then again, if if you rush it, who's to say that you won't turn right back around and do this and commit the same crime, right? Commit the same sin against me. You will do it again because you have not sat in that long enough, right? You have not peeled back those layers far enough and deep enough, right? I am sure it's going to be uncomfortable, but imagine how uncomfortable it is, you know, for a black person to see the U.S. Capitol be attacked and nothing happens it's just like what in the world what is happening right now right that that was triggering for me seriously that that was so triggering
0: it had (laughs) to be i mean like a re-traumatizing
1: yes i was like we could even walk down the damn street with a black lives matter sign without being harassed by police
0: and one thing, there had been a lot of false equivalencies. Oh, well, the, the insurrection at the Capitol, you know, was Black Lives Matter, people rioted and blah, blah, blah. I would, you were in the heart of the Black Lives Matter movement in Atlanta this summer. I would like for you to explain what it was really like compared to what we saw on Capitol Hill.
1: Yeah, we were not trying to attack the police. Right. Although we have angst against, you know, the policing system, right. And how it has historically treated black people. I never saw anyone actively trying to attack police. I never saw anyone. We marched to the the state Capitol at one of the the rallies. No one was trying to burn down the state Capitol and rush in and zip tie. state lawmakers and hang them from you know from like from nooses which was the intent of these people right no one was doing that i was talking to a mentor of mine last week and we were you know we were we were like it is it is a wonder that black folks have not attempted to burn this whole thing down right amen it's a we're gonna have to do some some you know a, a sociological study right <laughs> at some point it's a lot you know, of restraint uh, yeah, about the restraint that we have, right, and about the justifiable rage that, that that we have as well, and that it's a wonder, again, that we have not, you know, justifiably just brought all of this stuff down. We have not, in, in my estimation right now, I think we have not, because we know that we would cease to exist in this country if we did. And we, we want to live. By wow. and large, you know, we want to live the same way everyone else does right? I don't think we, we want to die. <laughs> I don't think we all have collective death wishes, right? And so yes, that, that is the difference, the violence. I mean, you, you may have seen, you know, some cop cars torched at a couple of rallies and that kind of thing, but by and large, a whole coordinated effort to not just, you know, siege a government building, but to do harm, inflict harm against the members of that space, yeah, no. With real that, that,
0: bombs and real, real
1: bombs. girl, they had bombs like yeah, dude, real that's bombs. What, real bombs like that's what was most concerning to me is when I'm like. First of all, what are in these bags around this building? Y'all not, don't know anything about, about these bombs. Like, what what is this? I mean, I <laughs>
0: and well, and just you know, the policemen standing there as everybody just rolled in, and I watched these guys go in
1: between the velvet ropes. And yeah. was
0: like, yes like capital they tour. were
1: ushered in like yeah. they were They their hands were held you know as they were taken out of the U.S. Capitol and yeah. I saw policemen taking selfies opening barricades and so to anyone who thinks that okay this was staged is fake you are crazy you are out of your damn mind if you think that number one that Black Lives Matter and Antifa infiltrated that space and that there was some black folk you know you know who again have bought into whiteness who were who were present at the insurrection yes but do not say that black lives matter and anti-fascists were the ones who were responsible for what took place when it is clear that the president of this country incited it he said show up at this time on wednesday we're gonna whatever you said that they're, they're gonna yeah Yeah, yes he said it's gonna be wild exactly and he didn't mean wild girls either no he didn't mean girls going wild right in in a wet t-shirt contest right he meant exactly what he said and exactly what we saw and then again he doubled down on it in his speech when he said i think it was like the next day or the same day when he said we're just getting started he said we are just getting started Sir, what does that mean? I know what it means. It means that you all will continue to be a threat to mm-hmm. this democracy. Yeah, that, that's the difference, is that Black Lives Matter is trying to hold together this democracy and hold those in, in leadership accountable for the ways in which it has you know, criminalized Blackness. And these people are just mad because you rightfully lost an election that Black and brown folks were responsible for you for losing <laughs> because we voted in, in record numbers, right?
0: Yeah. I was so sad because I was so excited about Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff and us turning Georgia blue. And I was talking to a friend of mine. She was like, "Have you got your blue lipstick on, I'm like, oh yeah. And then a few hours later, we're on the phone and I was like, it just stole all the joy of that moment. And this is just
1: unbelievable. That's called white lash. Yes, like the the same way the 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 um, Trump's election, many will argue that that was white lash against eight years of President Obama. I mean, I would argue that what we saw on Wednesday was white lash again. You know, against the victory that took place on that Tuesday. This country is we're headed somewhere, and those among us, you know, who want to ensure that the status quo remains the status quo, are going to do everything in their power to ensure that this country does not truly become an equitable society. No matter, you know, the bloodshed and, you know, the lives lost and what it'll cost, right? It costs to maintain white supremacy. Again, it costs financially and it costs spiritually. It costs morally. It costs in so many ways. It costs lives, And people are willing to die in the name of white supremacy and in the name of Donald Trump. And that is scary, that you are willing to die, not only kill others, but you are willing to die in the name of white supremacy and Donald Trump, your God. You know, I think people need to, um, you know, like-minded folks like yourself, Lisa, and others, you know, we got to stick together. We got to say, okay, you all would not, you cannot have this country. Right, we hear you all singing. We gotta take back our country. No, (laughs) (laughs) you all will not overtake democracy. Right, that's not democracy. Attempting to disrupt the peaceful transition of power is not democracy. Threatening to throw out votes, right? Calling the Secretary of State of Georgia, Donald Trump, and pressuring him to throw out votes in Fulton County, black votes. That's not democracy. Democracy is defending. Black and brown folks and our vote and our voices against white supremacists, because again, that is the threat. That's the real threat. Yes.
0: And you know. one thing I would like for you to speak to pastorally as well is, I've heard people say we have to reach out to the other side. We have to understand why they think that way. And my thinking is, uh-uh, I got nothing to say to you. If you are for Donald Trump and you think that was the equivalent to Black Lives Matter, then I have nothing to talk to you about. Can you address that just briefly, kind of from a spiritual viewpoint of, do we
1: really need to understand these people? Yeah, I mean, I protect my peace at all costs, right? And if I know that, because again, this this isn't just a physical fight or a political fight, it's also a spiritual fight. I have, I've been saying for a while now, that I think that white supremacy is demonic. It, it is a demonic force, right? And people worship it. And so, if I know that I do the same way President George W. Bush said back in 2001 that we don't negotiate with terrorists, he was talking about you know foreign terrorists. I don't negotiate with, with, with domestic terrorists. If white folks around this country could stand up and support George Bush when he said that you know this country does not negotiate with terrorists, then I can say that I also don't negotiate with terrorists who are homegrown because they are committed. This this isn't just a a matter of of ignorance about Black people and Black issues. Like, no, you are committed to hating me, right? You are committed. Your whole life is committed to maintaining this system that dehumanizes and defranchises, right? That's what you're committed to. Since you have committed yourself to that, what what, are we going to talk about? You know, I can tell you an hour straight about how you're wrong, about how it's unjust, about how it's unethical, about how it's, you know, antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I could spend, you know, a while talking about that. And some may, it may hit people. Oh, dang, like I'm that, you know, something. Yeah, I feel convicted. But by and large, doing that has not worked out in this country. Bam. Like, we've, been, we've been doing it for a long time. Thank you.
0: Reaching <laughs> like, across the island, trying to convert somebody, does not work. And I it like. It doesn't work. You said it's almost demonic. It's like, why yes. would I want to go hang with the people that are at the bottom of the barrel? That's not where I desire to be.
1: Yeah. <laughs> no, seriously. I mean, if if the greatest civil rights activist of all time, if y'all could kill Dr. King. And, and not just kill him, but whitewash his message, right? The, the ways in which folks get up on Fox News and distort his very radical messages about the military, or well, about militarism, about capitalism, and about poverty. If you all can distort that on national platforms, then I okay. can talk to you. So,
0: so it's incumbent upon those of us who are like-minded, like you said, yes. and who are spiritually inclined and want to see the world a better place, we do not need to engage with the enemy with a capital E.
1: Yeah, no, no, not at all. Not at all. And although there were 74 million people, you know, who voted for Donald Trump, the the majority still won. I would say just focus on, focus on your allies, focus on those, you know, who don't be out here trying to convert your childhood friends who, again, just are hell bent on, you know, maintaining their place in society, no matter what it may cost you, no matter, you know, how it may disenfranchise you. Don't, don't spend your time on that. Spend your time doing something else.
0: <laughs> well, that is pastoral and practical.
1: <laughs> yeah. Protect your peace. Like protect your peace and your time. Because you want to make sure that you are of strong and sound mind and strong and sound spirit, right? To continue to fight this fight and engaging with terrorists, that doesn't benefit you at all. It's not healthy. It's not healthy at all. Good.
0: I so agree with you. Reverend Amber Lowe Woodfork, you are a treasure. And you know, I I love having you on. Uh, Go to her website, truthistrouble.com. You can see how beautiful she is because this is a podcast. You can only hear how beautiful she is. Uh, And and inside and out, your radiance comes across in your photographs. Truthistrouble.com. And get a subscription to the YouTube channel, Truthistrouble. Oh, wonderful. (laughs) Well, I thank you for your time. I know you're very busy, especially... Right now, you've got a lot of people calling on you to talk about this,
1: so thank you for taking the time. I have two more things like today on <laughs> this, and Good. I love it, you know, I, I love having these public talks like this, it's what I love doing, besides being out in the streets and at the state capitol and doing that kind of work and doing community organizing, right, I love having these conversations because, you know, really, this is the education that needs to be done.
0: Well, it um, does, and and I appreciate it.